0: All right, folks. Welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a very, very special guest with us. We have Chris Volk, who is an educator. He's a former CEO and founding CEO of two public REITs three public REITs. i found oh, added
2: two.
0: <laughs> took three public. public. Okay. Took three public. So Chris will definitely lead us down the path of REITs. He used to run Store Capital and very, very smart guy and really enjoy listening to his article, reading his articles as well as listening to his other interviews. So this is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about REITs and anything else that kind of comes across our path. So Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. We really do appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come talk to us. It's a pleasure to have you on the show and maybe you could kind of fill everybody in on a a bit of your background and kind of how you got started in, in REITs maybe.
2: Oh, well, sure. I mean, you know, Andrew Davis, a pleasure to be here. So I got started in, uh, in REITs because I, well, I got started in commercial banking. Uh, so I spent six years in commercial banking and I was immersed in reading financial statements and understanding how businesses could pay back loans and that kind of thing and why businesses, some businesses are better than other businesses. And one of my customers was uh, a gentleman in Arizona. I was in Atlanta at the time. And he had a company that was in the business of owning chain restaurant properties and just renting them to the operator on long-term lease basis. And, uh, and at the time, by the way, this is in the uh, early eighties. There were no REITs to speak of. The REIT wave didn't really start happening until 1992, 93. And, uh, so I moved to Arizona and we would be buying real estate or, or building real estate and then leasing it to chain restaurant operators. And as an ex-banker, it was really like financing. It's a capital stack alternative. Somebody's choosing to have a landlord instead of a banker. In having a landlord, it also alters their capital stack because they're not having to put so much equity into the real estate that they're um, operating out of. So we uh, ultimately ended up taking that company public. So I led the public issuance of uh, stock and of uh, franchise finance. And that was 1994 and then became president of that company. And then ultimately we sold it to GE. So I became a GE employee for a little bit, but uh, later on Mort and I worked together and we started a company called Spirit Finance, which is still exists as a public company today, but it's a, it's changed the name, it's Spirit Realty Capital, but it's a REIT and it's on the New York Stock Exchange. And so we created that and we sold that at the time in 2007 to some investors out of Australia and a consortium. That also was in the business of owning real estate and renting it back to people. And then ultimately, I started uh, Store Capital with a group of people, founding CEO of that. in 2011, and we took that public in 14. And uh, and today, it's a vibrant company with a good staff, and and uh, it's growing. And it invests in profit center real estate. So we just we narrowed the the uh, sector down to just anything that makes money for people. So it, it has to have a PL and l to it. So it, it could be a chain restaurant. It could be a veterinary clinic. It could be early childhood education. Uh, it could be a manufacturing facility. It could be a retailer, but it has to have a uh, unit level profit and loss statement to it. So we did that. And uh, over the last 10 years, I think stores bought somewhere in the neighborhood of $11, $12 billion the real estate, sold some of that, uh, but it's been busy. It
1: has been busy. It's cool. The uh, first time I came across you was online on Seeking Alpha. And I think you're a really great educator and you've done some great work in really explaining a lot of the jargon around REITs and, and just giving like good higher level concepts. I've been a shareholder of Store Capital. I've recommended it to paid subscribers of my newsletter. And, you know, something that I kind of like about that company in particular is it seems like that company goes where kind of like where the fish aren't almost like serving a, a particular niche of business that might be overlooked by traditional finance in a way
2: well that's true i mean Thor is focusing on middle market and larger customers who are what i would call bank dependent so the company is not focused on dealing with walmart's or uh, walgreens or home depots or lowe's or investment grade companies there are probably 30 favorite investment grade companies that, that use a lot of real estate out there and those companies are highly sought after in the broker marketplace mostly by the developer transactions Uh, store would focus on just simply profit centers to companies directly not through developers and uh, we became part of their capital stack and uh, and so we were an integral part of the financing that they needed and the other thing about store was that uh, our average transaction size was and continues to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 million transaction, which in the real estate world is a small number. So that $10 million, by the way, could be three properties, four properties, but it was $10 million. And so as you're uh, doing granular transactions, that's not really in the mainstream because people like to do larger transactions if they can. And you're dealing with uh, middle market, less known companies, but they're in sectors that are really fundamental. So for example, there are no investment grade veterinary clinic operators. They just don't exist. There are no investment grade early child education operators. They don't exist or fitness club operators. They don't exist. So these are really broad-based essential businesses that we need every single day. And so part of the risk is not just the credit itself, but the the viability of the industry is so important. So store historically is focused on really strong, broad-based viable industries uh, that have a pronounced need for capital.
1: It makes a lot of sense. I mean, if I were to break it down for non-finance types from the way I understand it, to be investment grade, you have to be a certain big size. And so when you talk about veterinary or childcare, they're not big enough from a scale perspective to kind of qualify for that. So I guess you look like you wanted to add something maybe. Well, yeah, I, I, (laughs) I,
2: I would say that the way the markets work today, very few companies elect to be investment grade. They don't want to. So you think about companies like Dunkin' Donuts, or Dine Equity, or Zappabee's. I mean, these are very large companies, but they're not investment grade. I mean, in the restaurant space, there are only two or three investment grade companies, period. But it's one of the broadest based industries out there. And there's indeed large companies. But some of the companies that are not that big still can issue single A or double A rated debt. And they can do it through structured finance vehicles without having the Corporation itself be an investment grade company, so I think that uh, the vast majority of businesses globally, not just in the United States, elect not to be investment grade because it it actually helps them lower their cost of capital.
1: That makes sense from a broad picture looking at kind of commercial real estate as a whole, and maybe why investors should take a look at it from a long term perspective. You know, are there certain trends that investors should pay attention to that? Look really attractive, make commercial real estate look really attractive? Is it something that could outgrow the economy? Do you think it will just grow in general, align with the economy, or do you think there's a chance it could mature in the next, say, 10 or 20 years?
2: Well, I think that one of the things that I've written about, and I have a book coming out about this corporate business models. I mean, I'm a business model geek, and I always find that when analysts look at REITs, oftentimes they leave their brains at the door a little bit <laughs> and, and because real estate is this visceral thing. You have a reaction to it. Do I like this building? Do I do I like this tenant? I mean, you're making all kinds of qualitative decisions and you're thinking about the asset in maybe a different way than you would be thinking about buying Procter & Gamble stock because you're not really knowing what the breakup value of Procter & Gamble is or Coca-Cola or something like that. Uh, but in REITs, you kind of do that. And so, so with real estate... It's very hard for people to get over the physicality of the asset sometimes. And I think it's very important as you're thinking about, can you outgrow the economy and whatnot? It gets really down in my mind to business models, corporate business models. A lot of times analysts spend less time on corporate business models and focus instead on, you know, whether they have secured data or unsecured data or things like that, which should have almost no impact on corporate business models. And as I was constructing store capital with our team, you know, we focused on several elements of the business model. I and mean, one was that you wanted to have built-in lease escalators that were decent enough, you know, I mean, and you can't, recreate that over time. So uh, you can't decide five years from now, let's change our lease escalators <laughs> because by that time your portfolio is so big, you just can't do it. Uh, the other thing is uh, trying to maintain a low dividend payout ratio. You you all write a lot about in your, in your material about uh, the importance of compounding. REITs have a difficult time with compounding because they have to pay out 90% of their income in the form of dividends, but they have this shield from depreciation, which which basically captures a fair amount of cash. And so when you're looking at dividend payout ratios, you're incorporating that shield and REITs can actually pay out far less than 90% of tax or they could pay out 90% of taxable income, but far less than 90% of cash flow to investors. And so in the case of store, our payout ratio was around 70% able to then whirl that other 30% and get that compounding of interest. that's so important. So if you take into account the compounding that you can get plus the rent growth and you throw those two together, you know, store was constructed to generate something like 5% internal growth a year, maybe more than that, right? Not too bad because inflation is 5% or less. I mean, you're staying even or the economy is not growing 5%. And then if you can, on top of that, if you're trading for a premium to what the assets cost, which a good net lease company should, then you're able to buy more assets and benefit existing shareholders by doing that because the new shareholders are buying in at at a different share price and you're getting a spread on that. And so that's probably going to add, let's say, another two to three points in growth potentially for store. So you're talking about maybe six to 7%, let's say, in growth. And that's going to be better than, than the overall economy. A lot of times people think net lease rates are sort of a bond. What's well, net lease? It's a bond. It's not a bond. I mean, it's, it's far different from that. And it's not really real estate. It's an operating company and it's generating you know the cash flow, it's reinvesting the money, it's getting the rent growth, it's getting some drive because some some tenants don't pay, so you're going to have that, and then you're buying new assets as well, and you put all that together and you're trying to generate six to seven percent growth and my goal was always to be able to have double digit rates of return every single year i mean and which is actually a terrific deal. if you can have that kind of a dividend yield and that kind of growth, and that's going to generally outpace the economy over time. so having led three net lease companies, over time, just give you an idea, I mean, first company was public from 94 to 2001. The return on that annually was about 12.2%. Uh, the 10-year treasury averaged 650 during that period of time. So you're getting treasuries times two or whatever. So I think that's not a bad deal. I mean, the second company was public for a much shorter period of time. So we started in 03, took it public in 04, sold it in 07. But the investors got a 19.2 percent or some 19 percent rate of return. Uh, the ten-year treasury was at the time four to half and change, and then store today I think is still kind of in the 12 13 percent total rate of return since it's going public range, and that's. You know, including in 2020, which was a very difficult year for stores. So, uh, so stores recovered through that and should be, you know, positioned to deliver consistent double-digit rates return. And throughout all of this, by the way, store generally our store and prior net lease rates that that I've led generally outperformed the broader REIT market, being offices and apartments and that kind of stuff, the things that that people think of as traditional real estate. So that was exciting to me.
1: I mean, that that sound like pretty good risk. Adjusted returns, especially because the income streams, yeah,
2: (laughs) like those,
1: (laughs) 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 you know, businesses are pretty incentivized to pay their rent payments. I would think. When you, you know, do you think some of that analysts leaving their minds at the door, do you think some of that has to do with the fact that REITs are kind of a newer business structure and maybe just haven't reached the size and scale of some of the other more popular businesses and so maybe that's why it's, some of that gets misunderstood or undervalued or anything like that.
2: No, I think it's partly because of where real estate comes from. It's the legacy of real estate. So when REITs were first introduced I and mean, when the legislation was first passed in the Eisenhower administration, uh it was REITs were designed to be sort of the way your average American could buy into institutional real estate, some big office building. You know, how can how can you buy a piece of the empire state building you know and then you say well that sounds terrific and you, so what's the empire state building worth well you know you just get it appraised you find an appraiser and you get it appraised and you get an idea for what the building's worth and and then you borrow some money on it so let's say you, you put some debt on it and then the rest of it's all equity and you divide that by the share count and you get the value per share i mean it was all based upon nav it was the was the starting point for valuation and that mindset has been very difficult to shake people from. And in fact, even today in, in private institutional money, a lot of it is based upon appraising the values because they have no other way to do it. So you're valuing the real estate. So NAV becomes even private today. And- Important today in the private market, but for public investors, their mindsets are way different. You know, for example, it, real estate is always subject to some bizarre things that can happen. Uh, you know, you could have people from foreign countries buying buildings just to get money out of that country or just to preserve capital. They're not even trying to make a return, right? And so, do I want? Do I really care <laughs> if if that's my value? I mean, I mean, the S and P 500 is done something like a 10 over a long period of time uh, from a rate of return perspective. Mm-hmm. I think your investors don't want to make zero. You know, I mean, they want uh, they have a different mindset. And so if NAV is going to guide them to a zero, they shouldn't really be that interested in it. So what you have in real estate is kind of a friction between sort of the NAV look in terms of what the appraisal number is and the business model look that, you know, what is what return can it deliver? And I think for you and your investors, you're much more you know interested in the latter than the former.
0: After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial.
1: I would say that's fair. I guess it kind of goes to that compounding idea you were talking about earlier. And, you know, part of compounding obviously is a business earning a return on capital that's invested. So, you know, there's a formula I've I've seen you speak about before called return on equity. And I believe you mentioned in your book, so can you explain what return on equity is and why investors should care about return on equity?
2: Okay. So I have a book that's coming out it'll be out on May 10th and it's called the value equation. And it's a business guide to wealth creation for entrepreneurs, leaders, and investors. And I wrote this because First of all, it's an extension of things I've written way over the years, and it focuses on business models. Which I'm pretty obsessed with business models. Untold numbers of books on how to get wealthy. The richest people in the world historically have made their money in business. And uh, there are very few business books that talk about how businesses create wealth. And so this is that kind of book. And it's focusing on, on business models. So, business models... Uh, can be whittled down. Over the years, I did some very complicated business models, but ultimately found that you could take any business and just aggregate it down to six variables. And the variables, when you string them together, will give you what's called a current pre-tax return on equity. So what are you making as an investor today? What's the cash flow available to you today on your equity investment? And this is if you're running the business at cost. So from the standpoint of the operator of any business in, in, in the world. And you're focusing on financial fundamentals because finance is like music. It's the uh, universal language versus accounting is not universal and it's not much of a language either. So, um, and, you know, not, a, so, not
1: a romantic one
2: no, <laughs> for some <no>. of us. <laughs> no. So anyway, see, so it's focusing on current returns and equity. And once you get to that, you can build off of that to get into corporate valuations. You can start to estimate corporate returns. I mean, you can build a lot of things just off of a simple formula to make things simple for people. And so the book is 16 chapters long, and they're bookended by four chapters that are pretty easy to read. It's sort of the middle eight that has some math in it because the value equation is math. There is a value equation, but it's all middle school math. So you have to sort of be patient with it. You can't be running a business or, by the way, making investments without understanding a modicum of of math. So it's trying to keep things simple and you can't get more basic than six variables. And then with that, you can transport yourself to the idea of what is it like to be an investor? So if you're buying a company, if you're Warren Buffett, who is is a store shareholder today, if you're buying a company, Warren likes to think of buying companies or buying stocks is like buying a piece of a company. So he's Mm -hmm. analyzing the business and focusing on being able to buy that company. But Oftentimes when you're buying a company and he's a large shareholder of, let's say Apple is he's one of their biggest shareholders, man, I think their biggest shareholder when he buys Apple, he's not buying at cost. So he's not getting in at Steve jobs or was <laughs> cost. He's getting in at a substantially marked up value, which basically means that one of the key variables for the evaluation is something called business investment, which is sort of a, a defined term that's in the book, but it's basically what has to be funded with OPM, other people's money and, and equity. And, And but if you're an investor and you're buying into a company like Apple, your business investment is higher than theirs because you're buying it at a different price, you know. Mm -hmm. And so your return on equity is different from that. And so that's, you know, as you're looking at it from a financial perspective and a value based perspective, that's what you have to come into factor into it. So you could take a simple equation. You could start at it from an entrepreneurial level running a business. But then you can also take that and just whittle it all the way through to what's it like to be an investor in the same business at a different price.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So I guess let's take that apart a little bit in that how do you value a REIT? It's you were talking about the NAV value, and that's what a lot of analysts use. And I think you've established that that's probably wrong. So how do we how do we value a REIT?
2: Sure. Well, NAV is useful in the sense that you know REITs are unique in that they're asset based. So when you buy a REIT stock, if you know the NAV, that's almost your downside, right? I mean I mean it's like you know the breakup value of a company. Uh you could be broken up into assets where whereas you wouldn't know that with almost any other business, which is what makes REITs, it's one of the many things that makes REITs a very safe investment. But when you're buying into a uh real estate investment trust, I tend to look at, you know, when, I, when I'm when i stacking REITs up against one another, I tend to sort of take the approach that I would do in the book. And there's a, an analysis of uh, store capital, in fact, from 2014 to 2019, and just walks you through the financial model of store and how it worked. And ultimately, it comes down to with all great businesses, and the idea of wealth creation is to make the company worth more than it costs to create. And uh, theres you guys are probably familiar with the notion of economic value added, which construct done by Stern Stewart and company. But I tend to focus really not on EVA, but on what I would call an EMVA, equity market value added. So I don't really care as a leader. Or even as an investor, I don't really care about the cost of capital. I care about you know the ability to make the equity worth more than it cost. And by the way, very few businesses in the world rise to this level. I mean, the, the people that are in the Forbes 400 all created businesses that are worth substantially more than they cost to create. So when I'm looking at a real estate investment trust, I'm stringing together typically three numbers. One is the dividend yield. You know, everybody knows what the dividend yield is. The second is what is the internal growth rate? So that the the internal growth is sort of the number a RE can generate without raising a nickel worth of new equity. So it's uh, it comes from rent growth and it comes from reinvesting the free cash flow. So rolling that, getting that compound, and then the third component is external growth, which is the amount of, that the RE could generate by raising new stock. and And so I'm stringing together those three numbers. So if you have dividend plus internal growth plus external growth. Then you get to expect a total rate of return. And and when you get expected total rate of return, then you're looking at you know all the REITs and you're lining them up and you're going for the ones that have the most <laughs> the best expected total rate of return. Sure. And I would say that leverage matters and there's some risk to, to it and there are probably some qualitative issues to it. But uh, you know, stores only forty percent levered on cost, so there's just not risk in the in the sense of I mean forty percent leverage on real estate is pretty low.
1: Yeah, it's very low. That's very low. Would you say within the different commercial real estate types? Is there, I mean, you're talking about, you know, the price you pay obviously matters a lot, but do you think there's a type of commercial real estate that might be? economically more advantaged than others or does it just really depend?
2: No, you know, I think so people would ask me every now and then, well, how's the REIT industry doing? You know, which is sort of like asking you, how's the C-Corp industry doing, guys? (laughs) I mean, mean, it's a tax election, right? And so you've got REITs that are doing everything from cell towers to billboards to apartments. I mean, they're in fundamentally different businesses. I mean, and and you're analyzing these companies, you can get a lot of diversity in a REIT portfolio, of course, because even though it's their dividend stocks, it's not you know, an industry per se. It is these are all parts of lots of different industries and lots of different business models. In the case of the net lease sector, which I was familiar with, it has different characteristics from others. So You start off with the sales to business investment ratio, which in REIT parlance is pretty simple because it's like cap rate, you know. So in the case of store or yield was 8 percent. I mean, uh, and in the value equation, then what you do is you take your 8 percent and you multiply that by an operating profit margin, which is a cash flow margin. So what you got to do is back away all your non-cash depreciation amortization. And you got to ignore all the stock based compensation too. And so you're just getting down to a cash operating margin. And in the case of net lease companies, what's amazing is that the cash operating margin is huge. I think it's, it's kind of average yeah. around 94%, something yeah. like that. So the sales to investment ratio is not that exciting. You know, it's not going to, light you on fire compared to a Google or something like that. But the operating profit margin looks pretty sweet, you know, and then, uh, and then you factor into it, the percentage you're funded with OPM stores, basically 40% funded with debt, uh, 60% with equity and the cost of that OPM. So I don't know, I think stores cost of OPM today is probably kind of in the high threes or something like that, maybe 4%. And then you subtract out the maintenance capex. You include that as the, the last variable And these companies have almost no maintenance CapEx, right? And then if I'm looking at multifamily, or let's say I'm looking at uh, offices or shopping malls, they have far more people, far more costs. So their operating profit margins are going to be less. They're going to have more CapEx associated with them because they have a lot more maintenance CapEx. And so the business models are just going to be different. So you have to stack up the business models against each other and focus on, uh, if you're a value investor, tend to be a value investor, you focus on those REITs that are going to be delivering you the highest rates of return.
1: The thing I can't figure out, too, is some of those categories you talked about with the the higher CapEx, their cap rates were lower, too. And I'm kind of scratching my head, like, why are the cap rates so low and people are buying into those when there's other alternatives with higher cap rates and higher margins?
2: And it's because people don't focus on business model. They oftentimes just focus on NAV. I mean, you get down to, I mean, so office buildings traded a certain NAV. One of the things I remember, we went public in store in November of uh, 2014. And the day after that, there was a, so our equity IPO was something like $560 million. The day after that, the largest street IPO of the year happened and it was over $2 billion. And it was an office read out of New York and it dealt with class A offices. And so and we were on you know, chicken stores and uh, veterinary <laughs> clinics or whatever, and they owned class A offices. So from a cap rate perspective, they traded uh, differently than we did, much higher multiple because of the perceived, quality of the real estate, the institutional quality of the real estate. They, you know, um, when REITs go public, they have to do what's called, do the filing and they they have to do what's called a magic page. And people spend forever calculating these magic pages, but basically magic page is giving you sort of an annualized free cash flow for this distributable to investors. And so in this case, when you looked at their magic page, you saw how much in capex they had to make just to kind of keep up their buildings, which typically you wouldn't see in, in a public disclosure anywhere. Mm. And when you did that, you realized that even though they were a much more highly valued company than we were and a bigger company than we were, their free cash flow was about the same as ours. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, when you looked at you know a ratio like funded debt to EBITDA, which people will look at as a risk ratio for debt, think about leverage, or ratios there were similar. But but if you said funded debt to free cash flow. Then we looked like we had half the levers they did, you know, because people didn't focus on the free cash flow piece of it because of half-back. So people missed some of that, and that's important.
0: The cap rate idea, I think, is really interesting. And something that I know when I've been reading through annual reports for different REITs is sometimes, I'm not going to name any names, but sometimes companies will not make it super obvious what their cap rates are. And is that something? How, how do investors get past that? Like, how do you, if it's not in there, is it just mean that it's you got to guesstimate, or how do you get around that kind of idea?
2: Well, you know what the un, you know what the undepreciated real estate is. So you take a look at their financial statements, and you mm-hmm. can take their gross real estate off of the off of the financial statements, so the real estate before depreciation, and then you can uh, take their annualized rents, if you want to, off of the financial statement. Sometimes I back out. Uh, numbers if you can do it, which is a little bit uh, trickier. So for example, in the net lease space, uh, some of the landlords get reimbursed for property taxes. They get reimbursed for certain maintenance charges. And so what will end up happening is they'll show that reimbursement is revenue, uh, but then they show an expense down below for the same amount. They wash, right? If you're looking at the financials, you want to just kill them both, you know, because you want to get down to sort of what it really costs to run this business and what the the true rent income is, and then you just divide the rent income into the gross assets and come up with it. It won't be exactly right, but it can come up with a pretty close approximation of uh, what the cap rate is. Yeah,
0: that
1: makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's a great way to break it down.
2: Yeah,
0: I'm kind of fascinated by this idea of the business models because I think that's something that has kind of intrigued me as I've learned more about different companies. You know, one of the things that I like about REITs and financials and some of those things is they're different business models and they're kind of different languages, and it's kind of fascinating to learn how the different things
2: operate. Yes. So in the book, I'll I'll take the fangs, for example, and take their business models and compare them side by side, right? Yeah, that'd be Um, fascinating. And uh, that kind of stuff. One of the things I noticed, so years ago, when I devised the value equation, I went into an analyst on Wall Street and I said, you know, you can take this business model and you can rank restaurant companies. Like you can actually like literally rank them because they all have different business models. Like for example, Outback Steakhouse isn't open for breakfast, you know, it used to just be open for dinner. So I think they may now have a lunch business. So you had different, you know, all these restaurant chains had different models, you know, and for some of them sell alcohol, some of them don't and whatnot. I said, you can just rank them all, you know, and you could say who's got the best business model and who's who, therefore who can grow, who can't grow, you know, you know, what kind of returns on equity they have. And the analysts didn't want to do it because they're ranking companies, right? And they don't want to rank companies because they, they're sell side analysts. They want to tell oh, you everything's yeah. good. You know, I mean, uh,
0: everything's great. Everything's great. Everything's great. Okay. So,
2: yeah. So, so business models, I think, is, are really important. I think people focus on them way too seldom.
1: Yeah. It's funny because it sounds so profound when you say it. And then it's such a simple concept. Like, as an investor, it should right. be something that should be near the top of the list and not near the bottom or something that's just kind of an afterthought.
2: And not even just as an investor, as you're an employee, you're working for a company, you have a choice of where you want to work. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're working for companies that have better business models, you're apt to get a better raise, you're apt to get, Mm -hmm. you know, more opportunity. I mean, it goes throughout. It's not just investors or entrepreneurs.
1: Can we maybe tease out a different example of a business model that you would rank really highly, maybe outside of the REIT space. If we were to talk um, about the fangs, or sure, sure, anything.
2: Happy, happy, happy. To talk about the fangs. Happy in the book. There's an example of Walmart, and what it does is it takes Walmart from over lots of years. So it takes them from 20 years, so 2001 to 2020. In that period of time, Walmart had 437 billion dollars in cash flow from operations, so like a really big number. <laughs> And they bought back $107 billion of the stock. They bought back about a third of their stock. They paid out $86 billion in dividends. Okay. And so that left them with $243 billion to reinvest into the business. And so you'd expect, okay, at the end of 2020, that their stock should be worth $243 billion more, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. because they put that in the business, but the stock was only worth $98 billion more. So basically they lit $144 billion on fire. And so this is where you get down to business models, where you're looking at, you know, what do companies do? And you're focusing on how much are they worth more than they cost? And you can actually graph and you can look at Walmart's loss of value during that period of time. Now, by the way, the pandemic was good to them. So I did this through January of 20. In fiscal year 21, their, their stock popped up. I think that the other years are actually more instructive because I think the pandemic is kind of an, kind of an isolated event. So you yeah. can't count on that.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah. I like that kind of long term outlook of let's see what really happened. Not, you know, there's such a focus on quarter, what happened this quarter, what happened last quarter. Why don't we look at a longer term basis and try to Oh yeah. use that for well, you know, I,
2: I had stories on GE when they bought us. They praised the assets as low as possible, you know, and the reason was because they were a C Corp, not a REIT. Uh, they're graded on PE multiples, not AFFO multiples. And they want the E to be as high as possible, which means they want as little depreciation as they can get. So they wanted the real estate to be appraised as low as possible. And then they wanted to build a slug of goodwill because that goodwill wasn't amortized or depreciated. And so... The other thing it allowed them to do was it allowed them to flip real estate in subsequent years and book enormous gains. Uh, So they ended up looking really smart. So the Goodwill is still sitting there on the sheet. And there's no way of knowing whether they're buying low and selling high or not because it's all it's all obscure. It gets down to the fact that accounting is not a really useful language sometimes. And, uh, And so people don't see it. And this is why you have to look at companies over multiple years. Doing it just one year isn't enough oftentimes.
1: So the kind of talk about your version of return on equity, is that is that something you recommend in the book to be applied over X number of years? Well,
2: I think you should look at it every year. you know. But I think that when you're looking at companies over time and you're seeing whether they've been adding value or, or losing value, it's important. I mean, all great businesses started off, by the way, I mean, uh, Walmart started off creating scads of value i mean uh, without question it's just it's in a different life cycle today you know so it's it's a, in a much more competitive space and it makes it much more challenging for it to do that whereas you know the fangs are still you know we're able to do that so if you're giving me uh so we're going to talk about the fangs of, of the fangs google and apple just stand out you know? and what you do in the value equation and you point out in your uh, book and stuff about leverage being a risk what you could do is you could set leverage to zero so you could just say, okay, how would Apple and Google look if they had no debt? And of course, both of them have very little debt anyway. Google has virtually none, you know. I mean, uh, uh, but if you're comparing it to Amazon, Amazon's got substantially. And you got to focus. You you can't just focus on the balance sheet debt. You got to focus on uh, operating lease the lease obligations. So Amazon is not as asset light as all that. They have to rent a lot of uh, warehouse space. Walmart rents. Scaddest, uh, so the amount of OPM they're using is is much higher. Or Netflix, for example, it has to pay for it has to you know incur a lot more debt in their financial model than the other two. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, so off <laughs> the fangs, Google and Apple stand out, and uh, it shouldn't be any surprise because pretty much those guys are pervasive throughout the uh, top of the Forbes 400, and and Amazon's there. But, you know, you look at an Amazon or a Tesla, people don't know what those business models are yet. I mean, I, one of the things about Elon Musk is, I mean, he lost money for, I mean, they had negative operating income for 10 years as a public company and and yet the stock kept going up, right? So, and nobody knows what the business model is yet. I, I was saying, you know, water seeks its own level. So if you're a value investor and you're trying to avoid getting hurt, focus on value companies and focus on uh, business models you understand.
1: Yeah, I think that's a concept we can all definitely agree on. It's very cool to talk about the book before it's been released. And it's obvious to me that there's a lot in there Mm -hmm. for everyday investors, not just investors that are focused on REITs. So the book title one more time and how people can get access to it.
2: Uh, The Value Equation, A Business Guide to Wealth Creation for Entrepreneurs, Leaders, and Investors.
1: That's going to be on Amazon and all the places.
2: You can get it on Amazon, Wiley, and I'm I'm sure it'll be elsewhere too. Yeah.
1: cool. Well, Chris, we really want to thank you for your time. I felt like a sponge in this conversation yeah. <laughs> and I thought we hit on a lot of great big topics. And is there any any other place people should go to learn more about you or should they just pick up the book and start there?
2: The book is a great, great place to start, but I would I also have we'll have a website up and it'll be called www.thevalueequation.com. It will have on it some spreadsheets and some learning guides for how to use the value equation, uh, how to use some of the concepts that are in the book. And we'll also be expanding on some of the concepts in the books. You write these books and then a year or two later, you're going, I should have included this in the book. So (laughs) I'll be doing some of that too.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. We really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. We know you're busy and we we do appreciate you taking the time to educate us on REITs. And and like Andrew said, I I feel like a sponge and I'm lucky because I get to go back and edit this and listen to it again and learn even more from the thing you are talking to us about. Because, you know, like I said, the the business model idea, I think, is something that's really, really fascinating to me. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, Chris. Uh,
2: Dave and Andrew, it's it's my pleasure. And I, I like your website. I like your material. I think it's valuable, and I think you're providing a great service.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate it.
1: We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day.